after Amar had been declared dead, we were reporting to people that he was on life support. I mean, that's true, but most people would read that thinking like, oh, so he's alive and maybe he's gonna survive. And he mattered to people in the community. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Baumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut, and this week I'm speaking with Lily Fowler. Lily is a reporter here at Crosscut tasked with covering immigration, which means that she has been very busy these last few years as the Trump administration has upended immigration policy to dramatically slow the flow of people into the United States. The repercussions of these shifts have rippled throughout the country, including here in Washington state. Lily has covered family separation as well as the impacts of these new policies on agricultural workers. She's also done a lot of work on the controversy over public airports being used for deportations. But one place that Lily returns to again and again in her reporting is the Northwest Ice Processing Center, a privately run facility just south of Seattle that holds detainees in the care of the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE. The facility is a place where people are held for indefinite periods of time before being granted asylum or, more often, being deported. It's a place of life and of death, and Lily's reporting encompasses that spectrum. Last year, she wrote about a wedding that took place at the facility. But more often, the news is much more grim. Even before the Trump administration came to power, the facility which was previously called the Northwest Detention Center, was a controversial place known for the hunger strikes its detainees would undertake to protest their living conditions. More recently, Lily has been reporting on concerns over the spread of COVID at the facility. But recently, she received a trove of documents that took her back two years to the death of one of the detainees at the center, Mergensana Amar. Amar's death, which came weeks after the rejection of his appeal for asylum and days before his scheduled deportation, was ruled a suicide, and there's little question that that was the case. But there was enough concern about the circumstances surrounding his death that lawmakers demanded an investigation. An investigation was opened, though it's unclear what is happening with it right now. But these new documents shed more light on what happened when Amar died. Before we get into the conversation, I want to note that we are talking about suicide here, and I want to encourage anyone who is struggling with suicidal thoughts to reach out for help. You can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. All right. Lily, welcome to Crosscut Talks. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'd like to start by talking about Mergensana Amar. Can you tell me who he was and how he ended up at the ICE facility in Tacoma? Sure. Um, at the uh, time that I met him, he was 39. He's a 39-year-old man who um, had shown up at a border crossing in California, just near San Diego. He had turned himself in and said he was looking for asylum. He was then transferred to the ICE facility in Tacoma, which is where I met him. He told both me and border officials 
that he was discriminated against in Russia, right? He's from a republic in Siberia and uh, said he looks Asian and that he was threatened by, um, by white supremacists and that he mm. wanted to come to the United States both for that reason and for economic opportunity. He also told border officials some kind of strange things like he would do all that he could to cooperate if they wanted any help with overthrowing the Russian government. I, I met him um, in the fall of 2018 when he had already been sitting at the detention center for months. And the reason I went to go meet him was because activists in the area had told me that he was on a hunger strike. Hmm. But what caught my attention was that he had been on a hunger strike for more than a month. And most people, I mean, you hear about hunger strikes at the ICE facility in Tacoma all the time. They kind of come and go. And it's hard to, to verify because ICE officials will always deny it. But the fact that he had been on a hunger strike for so long made me want to meet him and find out, you know, who he was and what he was about. And so I met him. He was behind plexiglass at the time. And I sat there with an interpreter and asked him questions. Hmm. And he was very upfront about everything. Didn't seem off to me at all or crazy or anything like that. He looked kind of thin, like somebody who had been on a hunger strike. Looked kind of worn down. In any case, he told me that he was refusing to eat because his application for asylum had been denied. And not only that, but his appeal had been denied. He knew that his deportation was coming. A judge had ordered his deportation for November of 2018. And he wanted to get out. And he was protesting the deportation and, and said... He didn't want to go back to Russia, that he would, be, he would be in danger. He knew it. They would go after him. And so that was his story. And so this is a case where he has an asylum claim that he fears for his life. And was there any indication that, um, that what he was saying was, was actually the case? I know that you've, you know, you, you, you've looked into his case um, since then. What, what's your understanding of, of the evidence that he was presenting? Yeah, so part of the reason that his asylum claim was denied was because uh, he or she didn't think that there was quite enough evidence. But also it was because of a technicality. Um, you know, he talked about being in a jail uh, back home. And the other aspect of, of this is... He was a nationalist who believed in the independence of his republic and was protesting against the Russian government. And mm. this is why he, he feared for his life um, also, in, in addition to the, you know, the white supremacist and, and being discriminated against generally. And so he thought he had a target on his back and he told the judge all this and said he had been even jailed at one point for protesting the Russian government. And he was sure that if he went back that he wouldn't survive. And so, you know, I talked to his family and I talked to experts on the region about this. And 
his, uh, his family didn't know about his protest against, against the government, but they did say that he had indeed been attacked by uh, white supremacists. And the experts that I talked to about the region said that his story sounded credible, that does these, you know, Russia is known for its discrimination against people who look Asian, and that indeed that a protest against the government would be taken very seriously. But of course, you know, the judge disagreed and so denied it and, and he was, you know, left sitting at the detention center. So let's talk about the detention center. Can you just tell us what life is like for the people being held in this detention center? Um, and how many people are we talking about here? So the max capacity is over 1,500. Wow. But it's, it's usually not at max capacity. But people from all over the world are there. It's wild to walk in because it's people who are speaking all kinds of different languages, all races, all, you know, creeds. And there's locked doors everywhere. And the detainees in general, they're, they live in what's called pods. So it's, it's dozens of people in one big area with bunk beds okay. and maybe a desk in the middle. So there's very little privacy for the people who are in pods. But then there's certain rooms um, reserved for isolation. So whether that's because of a medical condition, and I believe there's also certain rooms for isolation because of other matters, perhaps disciplinary. So yeah, that's it. That's kind of it in the nutshell. Let's talk about about Amar's death now. What what were the circumstances around his death as you understood them? And and let's talk about what you knew before you received these new documents. What happened to um, to Mergensana Amar? Where was he? What were the circumstances around when when he was found before he was transferred to the hospital? Sure. So he was found in a cell um, by himself. There was something like a cloth or something or a pillowcase or something over his head. So his head was covered. Mm. There was some kind of handmade rope tied around his neck, like a six foot long rope tied around his neck and then tied to one end of the bunk bed. He was sitting on the floor in his underwear and there were books in Russian on the floor around him. And then um, that's when a guard found him. Okay. Based on the 911 calls, they, they had last seen him alive maybe 20 minutes before they found him. That's what at least one of the guards said. Called 911, started uh, doing first aid right then and there at the facility. Authorities showed up, fire showed up, police showed up ambulance showed up. They rushed him to St. Joseph Medical Center, which is right near the facility. And this is where typically they take detainees who are in some kind of emergency. Mm -hmm. Some of the documents describe him as, as looking blue, but they're able to get a pulse back right before, you know, they, they arrived at the hospital. And so he's in, um, ICU and the immediately the medical professionals there immediately 
let both police and ICE know that he is three-fourths brain dead and has zero chance of recovery. So he arrived at the facility on November 15th. And I mean, they were so sure that he was going to be gone any second that they started preparing, ICE started preparing a death notice. Hmm. And then for whatever reason, they held back. And the way that experts have explained it to me, so I've talked to this doctor at the University of Washington, but he works at Harborview. And he's an expert uh, on brain death. And he said, really helped me understand this. Because brain death, legally and medically speaking, that is death. There's no difference. And so this is, so this is that there's, there's, there's no brain activity, even if um, the person is being kept alive on life support, that blood is pumping, oxygen is, is, is going into their lungs, that if there's no brain activity, that they are, they are declared dead, right? Right. So that that was the case, in fact, for Omar. He was put on like a life support in the ICU and he's breathing through a ventilator. You know, nurse says, you know, he's, you know, almost completely brain dead, but not quite. He's still breathing some on his own. So the medical professionals hold back from saying, you know, he's 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 dead um, and then proceed to do a battery of tests. And so this expert at, at Harborview as I was telling you, he explained to me that that's what they will do to just be 100% sure that before they declare somebody dead, that he is in fact dead. And so they proceeded to do tests on him uh, that that first day that he was at the hospital and um, continued. And so by three days after he, you know, he was admitted, he was then declared completely brain dead. Hmm. So a lot happens after he dies. There's an outcry. Uh, advocates and activists are um, mourning this death while um, calling for um, for justice. There are lawmakers who are calling for investigations. What were the lawmakers concerned about? What gave them the sense that something needed to be investigated here? The fact that somebody was able to hang themselves in a cell, obviously, was of concern. I think in general, Congress can be, they can be almost, have as little information as the public about what's happening inside these ICE facilities. And I think that frustrates uh, Congress members. Anytime there's some kind of, you know, crisis at with ICE, Congress mem- members will will send out letters and they'll send out press releases to reporters knowing, you know, letting us know that this is what's happened. But, you know, ICE doesn't always respond promptly and even to, you know, people in position of, of power. And so, um, and that's what happened here. I mean, they immediately called for an investigation and well, here we are, two years later, and the only reason we know anything about what's happening inside that facility is either due to activists or because of FOIA documents. What are these documents that that you got your hands on in this last week? So the documents are from a nonprofit in D.C., uh, American Oversight, and some of the documents I had already seen, but there's also a lot of emails between officials that I haven't seen, I hadn't seen before. 
especially in the days leading up to and right after Amar's death. You can see ICE officials and their emails to one another trying to figure out what to do now. So what did they reveal to you? Well, they revealed a few things. Um, They revealed that, in fact, Omar was not 100%, as I said, 100% brain dead when he arrived, but he he died soon after that. They revealed that there was some discussion and some concern about a warden from the facility who was talking to the hospital staff there about Amar's care. And it's clear that ICE medical professionals saw that as him or her interfering with his care and that there was concern about that. Hmm. You know, the warden talked to the hospital staff about there not being any kind of acceleration of care because his case, because he had 0% chance uh, uh, chance of recovering. And, you know, a nice professional says, you know, look, that's not the warden's place to say. That's not his decision. He has no say over detainees' medical care at this point. He needs to kind of stay in his lane, in effect, is what they were saying. So this warden is is uh, an employee of, of the facility, not of ICE. So this is, is that the... Yeah, that's my understanding, is that he's an employee of Geo Group, so the private detention company that helps run the facility for ICE. It also, um, so the documents also show that ICE officials, once Omar was declared dead, they didn't know quite what to do. There's a lot of back and forth about well, do we tell people now? Do we hold off? He is brain dead. Brain dead, it means dead. He's legally and medically dead. And it was interesting to me because, you know, previous to this, I had written a pretty thorough rundown of Amar's story and what happened to him and how he died. And I imagined this kind of discussion happening, but I didn't have proof of it. It was sort of I was trying to fill in the gap, you know, the gaps by through my reporting and and looking at documents. And now it was all in black and white with them in their own words, having this kind of philosophical discussion about death and like, shoot, you know, this guy's brain dead, but not, you know, has might have still physical signs of being he's still on life support. Right. So what do we do? You know, and the policy with ICE is to let not only Congress, but the media know within 24 hours of a death that a detainee has died. And I remember actually in 2018, ICE telling me that very thing, that sort of to put me at ease, said, look, if something happens, we have to tell you within 24 hours, so just stand back, you know? And in fact, that didn't happen. I mean, they waited for about a week before they they sent out a press release and let everybody know. Hmm. Is there anything else that was in these documents that, that you think was was notable? They had him shackled to the bed even after he was declared dead. And what was most disturbing to me was that hospital staff actually raised the issue, that they had to raise the issue and say, look, why do you have to shackle a dead person? Hmm. So I want to ask you, it's maybe a bit of a, a sensitive question for your reporting because a, a lot of your reporting is around this idea that we should have known that this man was dead earlier than we were. And that as you as a reporter were trying to get this information, the officials were having a philosophical conversation about what is death. 
But I wonder, I can see people reading this reporting and saying, what's, what's the big deal? You know, I mean, this person is dead. Why does this matter that we know when this man died? I think it speaks to the complete lack of transparency on the part of not the federal government, but this specific agency within the federal government. You know, as a reporter, I deal with a lot of agencies. I can't think of one that lacks more transparency than ICE. And I think what it does is it leads to misinformation, right? So reporters are either left trying to fill in the gaps with information from from activists, which I, I think can sometimes lead to misinformation, or on the other hand, we're left with whatever crumbles of information ICE does give us, and we put that out, and it's not the complete story at all. After Amar had been declared dead, we were reporting to people that he was on life support. I mean, that's true, but most people would read that thinking like, oh, so he's alive and maybe he's going to survive. And he mattered to people in the community. I mean, he didn't have family here, but he mattered to people in the community. Hmm. And what if, you know, his family, obviously, even being so far away, you know, I talked to them for months. It was clear they were very well educated and asked all the right questions. And it was clear that they were looking for any news stories about their loved one, right? And so for all you know, family of a, of a detainee on life support, their family could be, even if they're in a different country, are reading the, these news reports and thinking like, oh, he's alive, you know? And even now for this latest story with these new FOIA documents, I messaged with ICE several times and got very little from them. I mean, almost nothing. I mean, it'd give you an indication. As part of the story, I wanted to note how many employees at the facility have tested positive for COVID because the care of detainees in the midst of the pandemic, I wanted to paint a picture for people about, you know, what's going on, the, uh, going on at the facility right now. They wouldn't even tell me that. The only reason that I know that is because I know that there's a loss, ongoing lawsuit where they have to report every time an employee tests positive for COVID. Hmm. And that was because of a lawsuit launched by immigrant rights groups. Otherwise, we wouldn't know. So, you know, this new information comes out at a time when we're at the tail end of the Trump administration. And, you know, you've been telling Mergensana Amar's story for, I mean, you spoke to him while he was living in, in protest over how he was being treated. You were there reporting on every turn of the screw as he was uh, dying and in the, you know, the days after his death. You have gone to great lengths to talk to his family, to understand his background. Um, I don't think that there's anybody who you have reported on as long as I've been working with you, who you probably know as well as you know this man. And I, I just think about how you are able to view U.S. immigration and asylum policy through this one person's experience. And, and I guess I'm just curious if you have any takeaways as far as 
What did you learn from Mergensana Amar in the time that you have spent reporting on his life and death? And what does it tell us about the state of this country's immigration and asylum policy? You know, one of the things that surprised me was how much of his story checked out. So from the hunger strike to his complaint, complaint, you know, claims about discrimination, even under ICE's official account or under experts' opinion, you know, people who are not at all connected to him, who have no reason to bolster his claims, even after checking records as far as, you know, his hunger strike or even after talking to experts or his common-law wife who at that point had no reason really to, you know, they admitted that they never knew he was part of any kind of nationalist movement, but she spoke at length about, you know, him being attacked and told me details about it. I guess in a way, yeah, I was surprised at how much of all that checked out because I kept expecting to, to find more discrepancies between what he told me and what other people said. So what that says about the system in general, I don't know. All I can say is that I think people like Omar have a tiny window to try to convince somebody else, an immigration judge or border officials about what their fate should be and what what they deserve as far as treatment and process here in the United States. And once that window closes, it can be really hard to open back up. And so as somebody who knew him, it was frustrating to see that door shut and it lead to such tragic consequences. But of course it makes you wonder how many other people does this happen to? And you might not hear about a suicide, but they get deported, and then what happens? All right. That's Lily Fowler. You can read her story about the death of Mergensana Amar at CrossCut.com. Lily, thanks so much for coming on the show this week. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Lily for coming on the show this week. Before we go, I want to let you know about CrossCut's next Northwest Newsmakers event on Wednesday, December 16th at 7 p.m. This live virtual event will feature host Monica Guzman in conversation with Dr. Vin Gupta from the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington. They'll be talking about the pandemic, the vaccines, and the future. Go to crosscut.com events for more information and to RSVP. All right. The episode was engineered by Rusty Bacall and produced by Jake Newman. You can subscribe to CrossCut Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more on the CrossCut Talks podcast, go to crosscut.com talks. And if you like the show, please review us. It really helps other people find us. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. CrossCut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back next week with another episode.